The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, why don't we open up in a word of prayer, and then we will look into God's Word. Father, we just want to thank you so much for the community of ICC that we have a place where we uh, belong, where we can come and connect and, and be reminded that we are part of something so much larger than ourselves. Um, we also want to give you thanks in light of the re- recent uh, Veterans Day that we've observed uh, for all of those men and women uh, who have offered their lives uh, for the freedom that we so uh, easily can take for granted. And so for all those in the military and all those veterans and, and those who have laid down their life, we just give you thanks uh, for their ultimate sacrifice that they've made for us. Father, we just want to open our hearts to you and receive everything that you want to give to us this day. And so as we close out the David series, we pray for open hearts that are ready to receive from you. So we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I do want to begin with a, another video clip. I feel kind of strange. I normally don't show this many videos. I don't know why I'm this kind of this movie kick right now. Um, but I think having recently just observed Veterans Day, I thought it would be appropriate to show you a clip from the World War II movie Saving Private Ryan. I've made reference to this movie in the past, but I've never shown an actual clip from the movie. Uh, but I think most of you have probably seen this movie in here. Uh, in the movie, the U.S. War Department discovers that a single family, a single mother and father, uh, are going to experience something tragic. Three out of their four sons, all of whom are serving in the European theater uh, in World War II, have been killed in action. And so the parents are going to receive three letters informing them of the death of their three sons all on the same day. And so realizing that it would be too much for this couple to lose their fourth son, uh, a search party is formed to find the last remaining son, James Ryan, so that he can be returned to their grieving parents. And so this Captain John Miller, who is played by Tom Hanks, gathers a band of men who've all survived the Normandy invasion, and they become the search party for Private Ryan. And in pursuit of finding him, many of them will lose their lives. And I want to show you the final scene from the movie. And I'm sorry it'll be a spoiler, but you've had more than a couple decades to watch the movie. So I feel zero guilt about spoiling this movie for you. It's your own fault. Um, But I want to show you the final scene after the last battle is over. And it captures Captain Miller's final words to Private Ryan and the impact that those words would have on this man for the rest of his life. So let's take a look at that video.
They're tank busters, sir. P-51s. Angels on our shoulders. What, sir? sense of joy that I write to inform you, your son, Private James Ryan, is well and at this very moment on his way home from European battlefields. Reports from the front indicate James did his duty in combat with great courage and steadfast dedication, even after he was informed of the tragic loss your family has suffered in this great campaign to rid the world of tyranny and oppression. I take great pleasure in joining the Secretary of War, the men and women of the United States Army, and the citizens of a grateful nation in wishing you good health and many years of happiness with James at your side. Nothing, not even the safe return of a beloved son, can compensate you or the thousands of other American families who have suffered great loss in this tragic war. But I might share with you some words which have sustained me through long, dark nights of peril, loss, and heartache. And I quote, I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Abraham Lincoln Yours very sincerely and respectfully, George C. Marshall, General Chief of Staff. with you, I, I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. 
I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. James? Captain John H. Miller. In his dying breath, uh, Captain Miller uh, says to Private Ryan, James, earn this. Earn it. In other words, don't let our deaths be in vain. Live a worthwhile life so that our sacrifice will have been worth it. And so visiting the beaches of Normandy decades later, And standing over the grave of Captain Miller, Ryan turns to his wife and says, tell me that I've lived a good life. Tell me that I'm a good man. I mean, what an incredible burden to carry throughout your life. Live a worthwhile life to honor those who died so that you could live. Truth is, most of us will not have a story this dramatic. But I think all of us will experience a similar moment in our life when we need to ask ourselves, did I live a worthwhile life? Did I do something of significance with the life that I was given? And I wonder, how will you answer that question? When it's all over, in other words, um, by what measure will you determine the worth of your life? In his book, The Road to Character, David Brooks writes, recently I've been thinking about the difference between the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the ones you list on your resume, the skills that you bring to the job market, and that contribute to external success. The eulogy virtues are deeper. They're the virtues that get talked about at your funeral, the ones that exist at the core of your being. Whether you are kind, brave, honest, or faithful, what kind of relationships you form. Most of us would say that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume virtues. But I confess that for long stretches of my life, 
I've spent more time thinking about the latter than the former. What a powerful way to think about the trajectory of your life, isn't it? In other words, based on the choices that you're making right now in your life, what do you value more? The contents of your resume? Or what will be said about you in your eulogy? I think the truth is that the world conspires against us to give ourselves to all of the wrong things. And so as we get into this message, as we close out the David series today, I want to invite you to wrestle with this question. How clear-headed are you about what really matters in life? What will the people closest to you say about the life that you live? when you've passed away and are gone. But maybe more importantly is this. What would God say about your life that you live? We are now coming to the end of the series on the life of David. And a number of you have asked me, kind of I think out of curiosity, in light of the fact that we've been dwelling on this for over a year now, uh, how I feel about closing the series. And the truth is I feel a bit of a sadness now that the series is going to be over today. Over the past year, I can't even count how many times I have read through First and Second Samuel in preparing these messages. And as a result, I feel this deep and profound personal connection with this man, David. I'm pretty sure if I ran into him at a party, I would recognize him. But now that we've gone through it all for over the course of this year, The question is this, what are we to make of David's life? I mean, some of you, I've mentioned this already a number of times, but some of you have confessed to me that you will never look at David the same way again after the series. And I'm not quite sure what to make of those comments. Is that a good thing? (laughs) Or have have I done a disservice to you? I think this, I have tried my best to present not a fairy tale version of David's life, but to look unflinchingly at the whole story, the good and the bad. And over the course of this journey, I think we've all discovered that there is actually a lot that is both confusing and disturbing about David's life. It's not easy to put all the pieces together in a coherent whole. And so we come to this question. How should we measure David's life? Is it even possible to sum it all up in a singular concluding statement about this man's life? I want to read to you a few quotes from some scholars who have dedicated much of their life to studying the life of David and get you a sense of what they feel about trying to make sense of this story. Robert Alter says this, The gritty historical realism of the story surely argues against the notion that it is simply legendary. Were David an invention of much later national tradition, he would be the most peculiar of legendary founding kings, a figure who early on is shown as a collaborator with the arch enemies of Israel, the Philistines, who compounds adultery with murder, who more than once exposes himself to humiliation, is repeatedly seen in his weakness and oscillates from nobility of sentiment and act 
to harsh vindictiveness on his very deathbed. David turns out to be one of the most unfathomable figures of ancient literature. David Wolpe writes, What is it about David that makes him the one to whom God bestows an eternal promise? He is such a contradictory personality that even the ancient rabbis confessed we are unable to make sense of David's character. David is everything. Conventional religion has a regrettable tendency to do surgery on the human soul, leaving only the exalted parts. But readers of the Bible find that the original source is more realistic. The Bible is filled with flawed human beings and fraught situations against the backdrop of charged sanctity. The entire book is indeed, in Leonard Cohen's words, a broken hallelujah. Jonathan Kirsch writes this, Exactly what are we meant to learn from King David as he is depicted in the Bible? Once we have read his biblical life story with open eyes, and once we have witnessed the shocking excesses of which he was capable, some of us may be left with the idea that he does not really belong in a book that holds itself out as a source of moral instruction for humankind. The one indisputable point about King David is that he is one hard case, writes Donald Harmon Akinson. And if we overlook these hard facts as preachers and teachers have tended to do, we miss the whole point of the biblical life story of David. The Talmudic rabbis were so troubled by the plain facts of David's life, the cunning, cynicism, the carnality that he displays unapologetically in the pages of the Bible that they simply dreamed up a new and improved David. The kinder and gentler David of rabbinic fantasy, however, is plausible only to someone who has never opened the Bible or who ignores what the Bible actually says of David. If we are courageous enough to read it with open eyes and with an open mind, we discover that the Bible is provocative and challenging, unsettling and off-putting, sometimes even shocking and scandalous. And nowhere in the Bible are we confronted more forcefully with what it means to be a human being than in the biblical life story of David. The deepest of all the mysteries that confronts us in the Hebrew Bible is the mystery of how a man as flawed as David can be a man after God's own heart. That's the question we need to answer today, isn't it? Because the truth is, maybe despite the fact that we've spent a year on this man's life, that still remains an unanswered question for you. How does a guy like this get to go down in history as a man after God's own heart? I think all of us can empathize with the struggle of these scholars who have been trying to make sense through their scholarship with the seeming contradictions that are many in the life of this man named David. I think many of you are old enough to remember this whole WWJD phenomenon that happened in the 1990s. Do you remember WWJD? Basically stood for what would Jesus do? And the essence of this movement was when you're stuck in a moral quandary or not sure what to do ethically, all you need to do is ask yourself, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, if you've heard most of the David series, I don't think we're at risk of starting our own fad as a result of the series with a counter-movement called WWDD, What Would David Do? 
Because as I pointed out repeatedly in the series, David is not given to us as a moral exemplar to follow. In fact, if you live your life with this code, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble, I guarantee you. Because quite often, David didn't do the right thing. And yet, here is the thing. Despite all of his flaws and failures, many of which were very glaring, as Jonathan Kirsch points out, we're confronted with this fact that nevertheless, God says of David, he is a man after my own heart. This is the description that is most often associated with David. And the question is why? Why? To answer this question, I think we have to go back to the beginning. Because the book of Samuel does not begin with David. It begins with the Israelites protesting to Samuel the prophet. We want a human king so that we can be just like all the other nations. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, it says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Israel was different than all the other nations in the sense that they were led by God himself, who alone was worthy to be their king. But so then in asking for a human king, what God was saying was that they have essentially rejected my leadership over their life. And he warned the people that when you are given an earthly king, he is not going to have your best interest in mind as I do. But he will use you and abuse you for his own glory. And they said, great, it's okay, still give us a king. And so God honored their wish. And he gave them earthly kings. But in doing so, God sought for a king who would return the hearts of his people back to him. But Saul, the first king, proved to be a disaster as far as that goal was concerned. At the start of his reign, Saul looked so promising, so humble before God. But the problem was that the longer that Saul became king, the less interested he was in God. And it got so bad to the point where God basically said, this man is no longer fit to be king. First Samuel 15, verse 10 through 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And so God, as you know, called Samuel to anoint a new king whose name was David. And in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 7 of 1 Samuel, it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him, speaking of Saul. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But here is the thing. 
in some ways it seems like David falls into the same trap that Saul did. Humble, promising beginnings. But the deeper he gets into his kingship, it's as if he also begins to succumb to the power of being king. And there is no way to hide the flaws that David would exhibit in his kingship. But there is, I would argue, one major difference between David and Saul. And in fact, David and all the other kings that would follow after him. And it was this. As far as we know, David was never guilty of idolatry. Not once is it recorded that David worshipped idols or false gods. And sad to say, that same truth could not be said of just about every other king who ruled Israel. Not only that, but David never tried to claim the devotion and worship from the people that belonged to God and God alone. In other words, I think this is what made David so unique among all the other kings. David never forgot that God was the true king of Israel. And there is evidence of this throughout the David story. When David sinned, he understood that ultimately his sin was against God and God alone. And that's why he repented. When David was in trouble over and over again, he entrusted himself to God's care. One of the greatest joys for David was to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem so that once again it would represent God's presence among his people and that God would be worshipped alone in the nation's capital. And when the priests attempted to bring that ark with David as he was fleeing from Solomon, he knew what a powerful symbol that would be to claim the ark and say, God is with me. But he refused to use God to bolster his own political agenda. So he told the priests, take the ark back to Jerusalem where it belongs. I have no right using God's presence for my own agenda. On top of that, David longed to build for God a temple where God could be worshipped and sacrifices offered to him. As the nation's greatest poet, David would lead Israel into worship of God and God alone. David Wolpe writes, David's relationship with God is steady and assured throughout the story. A staunch believer and a worshiper, David prays, offers thanks, and most important, hopes to build the temple. His being credited with the Psalms solidifies the traditional depiction of David as the most devotional figure in the Bible. I have set the Lord before me always, Psalm 16.8. God is not always pleased with his servant's actions, to say the least. Still, throughout his journey, David, though sinful and rebuked, is never faithless. His failures do not make him doubt or reject God. Rather, they intensify his devotion. Ben Sarah writes that David loved his creator and God took away his sin. That is the uniqueness 
of the testimony of David. Now, listen, this is not a perfect analogy, and I hesitated whether I was going to use it, but I'm going to try, and I'm going to trust you guys, okay? But the difference between David and Saul, and frankly, David and just about every other king of Israel, could be something like this. It's like the difference between a husband who struggles to pick up after himself and never puts down the toilet seat after he goes number one, but, but, is faithfully devoted to his wife. And a husband who always picks up after himself and has good manners all the time, was well-raised, but keeps a girlfriend on the side. You see, that is the sin of idolatry, which the Bible, interestingly, often describes as adultery against God. And I think it's a no-brainer. Which spouse would you rather have? Now, the analogy is not perfect. I get it, okay? And I know some of you women are saying, well, if he really loved me, why wouldn't he put the toilet seat down? Let's just not press the analogy too deeply, all right? I think this is what God honored in David. The heart of a king who, flawed as he was, longed not only for himself, but for all of his people to worship God alone. But here's the problem. Sadly, the kings that would follow David, almost categorically, with only a couple exceptions, did not have the same heart as David. In fact, most of them were part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And so God sent prophets throughout Israel's history to rebuke the leaders for their failure to lead the people as they ought. Jeremiah chapter 23, it says this, starting in verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my sheep. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done declares the Lord. These rebukes to the kings of Israel are filled throughout the Old Testament, the prophetic writings. But what's interesting is this, that alongside these rebukes against Israel's leaders, God reminds them that he will keep the promise that he made to David and establish a kingdom through David's line that will last forever. And so that passage continues in verse 3 to 4. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them. They will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. And then as we see through the progression of the Old Testament, many of these prophecies are beginning to focus their hope in a single Messiah, an anointed one. A single king that will come in the Davidic line. This passage continues in verse 5 to 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is right in the land, is just and right in the land. 
In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. The truth is not even David was able to accomplish this. But what God says is that one day I promise that a better David will come who will be able to bring the hearts of my people back to me. Ezekiel chapter 34, 23 to 24 expresses this sentiment. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. The hope of all of these prophecies, the hope of God's promise to David, the truth is, actually, seemed lost as the history of Israel progressed. After Solomon, like it was in the days of King David, the nation is going to fall apart to civil war, and it will be split into two. And the northern kingdom of Israel would fall in 722 BC to the Assyrian Empire. And they would be never reconstituted as a nation. They would go down in history as the ten lost tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah would fall about 150 years later to the Babylonians. At the time that Israel or Judah fell to the Babylonians, this guy Jehoiachin was king, and rightfully so, because Jehoiachin was a blood descendant of King David. But he was a terrible guy. And the Babylonians didn't trust him. So they got rid of him, took him off the throne. And they replaced him with this guy named Zedekiah, who was actually not a blood relative of David. But they just figured that he would be more of a loyalist than Jehoiachin was. And it turned out to be a false assumption. Because Zedekiah would align himself with Egypt and rebel against Babylon. And Babylon would come, and they would easily crush the rebellion. And then something horrible happened. They forced Zedekiah to witness the murder of his sons. And then immediately following that, they blinded him, so that the final image seared in his mind for the rest of his life would be the death of his sons. And it basically seems like Everything is lost. The temple that Solomon built was burned to the ground. The walls of Jerusalem toppled. And God's people were now in exile in Babylon. And there was no longer even a throne for one of David's descendants to rule on. But even in this most hopeless situation, the prophecies, just keep coming. And God's promises keep being renewed. Through the prophet Hosea, God promised that one day, again, a true David, a better David, is coming who will restore this broken community of God's people and return the hearts of God's people back to him. Hosea 3, verse 4 to 5, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, 
without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. The prophet Amos would echo that same hope in Amos chapter 9, verse 11 to 10. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. And Micah gives us further details on this king that is to come, saying that he will come from this little town of Bethlehem, just as David did. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2 to 4, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she, will be, she is in labor, bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Zechariah tells us that this king that is to come will enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9, chapter 9 to 10, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bows will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then here is the real showstopper. Zechariah tells God's people that this long-awaited king that has been prophesied by prophet after prophet will be none other than God himself. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, it says, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. After Zedekiah was blinded, There would be no king of Israel to sit on a throne for over 500 years. In fact, the next person who will bear the title king of the Jews would be a man named Herod the Great, who was not even a Jew, but he converted to Judaism as a foreigner out of political expediency so that he could be granted a kingdom. And it would turn out that Herod was nothing more than a puppet leader for the Roman Empire. But in those days of Herod the Great, something amazing happened to a group of shepherds one night in a field. It's recorded in Luke chapter 2, verse 9 to 12. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby 
wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And the child that was born that night was none other than Jesus, the Son of God, a descendant of David, the promised king who would establish a kingdom forever and bring the hearts of God's people back to him. And three decades later, the same man would enter Jerusalem as an adult, riding a donkey, as the people would wave palm branches like they would welcome a king, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The long-awaited king promised by all the prophets had finally come. That is why when the apostle Paul was preaching in Pisidian Antioch, he spoke these words about the nature of the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, verse 20 to 22, after this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And then here is the key. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. You see, David is important in history because it is through the promise that God gave David that Jesus, the true king, the better David, would come into our world. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he did what no one expected he would do. Rather than claiming the long-abandoned throne of David for himself, he ended up willingly laying down his life and dying on a cross. And he did this because what needed to be restored was not the glory of Israel that they experienced in the days of David. But what needed to be restored was our broken relationship with God because of our sin, because of our adulterous hearts. Tim Keller, commenting on the nature of idolatry, says this, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. The human heart is an idol factory. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, God says about elders of Israel, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. Like us, the elders must have responded to this charge. Idols? What idols? I don't see any idols. God was saying that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. In other words, just like the Israelites rejected God by demanding an earthly king, God warns us to. These idols that you're putting your hope in, they are unstable and unworthy foundations on which to build your lives. 
Idols promise everything. They promise to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul, but all they will do in the end is take everything from you. And the message is that Jesus alone is worthy of our total trust because he alone is worthy to be our king. That's what Jesus himself testified in John chapter 10, verse 10 through 11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see, the Bible never invites us to make a hero out of David. I mean, truthfully, graded on a curve, David does okay, but that's not saying much considering his company, okay? I even want to say this, is that throughout the course of your life, the truth is this, is the leaders in your life are going to disappoint you. And it seems like right now in the church, we are going through a whole rash of leadership disappointment, aren't we? One scandal after another. And the truth is, maybe even I one day will disappoint you as your pastor. Because the truth is, we're all like David, just human. And I think the story of David is pressing us to ask that fundamental question. Where do you put your ultimate hope in this life? Is it in God or is it in your idols? The ultimate hope of David's story lays not in David himself, but the hope and anticipation of a better David, a perfect David who is Jesus. Jesus would show that he alone is worthy of that allegiance of that total trust because he is the only one that has laid down his life for us. And so I want to just conclude this message and conclude this series returning to this basic question. What is the measure of a life? What is the measure of a life? According to God, the answer is not determined on what you accomplish or how good a life you've managed to live. I think Jeremiah captures it perfectly in chapter 9, verse 23 to 24, when it says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. In other words, the singular assessment by God of the measure of our life will be simply this. Do you know me? Do you know me? If there is any wisdom we can learn from David's life, it is this, that from the beginning of his life to the end, he never wavered from that singular testimony. The Lord is my shepherd. He celebrated that in his greatest moments of victory, but he also confessed that in his most shameful and embarrassing moments of failure and defeat. The Lord 
is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He alone is worthy of worship. Let's pray. Well, we're done now in this study of the life of David. And as we reflect back on what are the ultimate statements we can make about lessons learned from the life of this man, and I think it really brings us to the focus of this singular point. It is that we, in our weaknesses and our flaws, like David, are such contradictory beings. In one moment, displaying such great faith And then truthfully, in another moment, capable of such great faithlessness of some pretty deep sins that maybe we don't even imagine we're capable of. And yet, there is this abiding testimony in the life of David that says that God is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. And the message that God, I believe, is trying to communicate to us is this. You are giving your heart to all of these idols that you think are promising you the satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning that you're seeking in life. But God is saying all of those false gods will fail you one day. And you will see that I alone, all along, was the only king worthy of your allegiance, worthy of your trust. And so the invitation of God is this. If there is any wisdom to be gained from the heart of this man, let there be the knowledge that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He alone loves me, cares for me, and will restore me and guide me. Can I just invite you to just pray for a few moments as you reflect on David's life and now maybe just take a pause to think about your own life. And think about what will be the eulogy that others would say about me at the end of my life? What will be the sum of my life expressed by those who have witnessed me the closest? And will it be said of me, he loved the Lord and he was loved by God? Let's just pray to the Lord right now for a few minutes and our worship team will come and close us in a time of response through singing.